This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books Network. This is New Books in Sociology, and I'm Michael Johnston, the host of this episode. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Anthony Harkins and Dr. Meredith McCarroll, both editors for The Appalachian Reckoning, A Region Response to Hillbilly Elegy, a book published by West Virginia University Press. Anthony Harkins is a professor of history at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where he teaches courses in popular culture and 20th century United States history and American studies. He is also the author of Hillbilly, A Cultural History of an American Icon. And Dr. McCarroll is the Director of Writing and Rhetoric at Bowdoin College, where she teaches courses in writing, American literature, and film. She is also the author of Unwhite, Appalachia Race and Film. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Harkins and Dr. McCarroll. Thanks Thanks very much for having us. So uh, to start off, could you tell us a bit more about how you came to write Appalachia Reckoning, A Region Response to Hillbilly Elegy? Sure, I'll begin, and then Meredith can join in. Um, so this was uh, obviously this is a, in, at least in part, a response to J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, which made a enormous enormous splash uh, across the country and was on bestseller lists for a long time. And and I realized that uh, increasingly realized that there was a lot of concern about that book in the in the region in Appalachia. And so I proposed a panel for the Appalachian Studies Association conference two years ago um, on reactions to hillbilly And I looked around online and found people that had commented on it and written on it. And uh, the panel went very well, and it was very well uh, received and attended. And uh, then West Virginia Press came and asked if we wanted to put a book together on that topic. And so that's at least uh, a part of the process, but we always were intending to not just directly respond uh, to J.D. Vance, but also to a broader question of how is Appalachia perceived and how do Appalachians see themselves, perceive themselves, and partly directly in response to J.D. Vance, but much of it also uh, extending beyond that. Yeah, so my, and then I kind of, my experience was and driven by an interest to collect a lot of different perspectives because part of what I felt was problematic about Hillbilly Elegy was the singular narrative that um, then shifted over and tried to speak on behalf of a large region. And so I was really interested in just collecting as many different perspectives on the Appalachian experience as possible. And that led to 
you know, working with some really fantastic writers who are, you know, poets, fiction writers who are telling some personal writing, personal narratives, and then also led to collaboration with a group of photographers that was really exciting. So together, these two different um, entry points kind of lead to a book that's really complex in the content and the subject, but also in the form. So you write that uh, uh, this really... Uh, this this uh, this project came out of J.D. Vance's uh, book. How did uh, the Appalachian experience that you discovered in this book from the uh, uh, compilation of different writings differ, and uh, how is it similar to, to J.D. Vance's findings? Meredith, do you want to begin? Sure. Um, well, I think it's some of the experiences that are included in our in our collection are similar to J.D. Vance's experience because although his experience is, you know, certainly kind of maybe an extreme version of uh, dealing with a family that is uh, impoverished and is dealing with uh, some abuse and addiction, that story is not completely unique. Lots of different people in Appalachia and across America have similar experiences of instability so I think that one thing that I appreciate about the collection is that we have people who have similar backgrounds to J.D. Vance who are telling their own stories, sometimes drawing different conclusions, though. Um, so part of, part of the similarity would be this personal narrative that uh, J.D. Vance talks about. And we also have um, contributors who are writing about the same spaces that J.D. Vance is writing about. So J.D. Vance um, grew up in Ohio and has ties to Appalachia and Kentucky uh, with his grandparents. And so some of our contributors are, are speaking specifically about their own experiences in those same spaces. So there's certainly overlap geographically and in terms of some of the experiences of our contributors, I would say. Tony, do you want to talk yeah, about the ways and, that it's and, different? You know, obviously much of his book is about his relationship to his family, a kind of love-hate relationship uh, with different members. And um, and I think that rings true for a lot of people in Appalachia as well. It's very, uh, it's a region that's very much about family and kin and community. Um, where I think it differs dramatically is the diversity of experiences that we address. As Meredith said, I think the concern about uh, J.D. Vance is the idea of the single story and that his experience is a kind of universal one, and, and at least that's how many readers have taken it and continue to take it. I just saw this story about the uh, Mind Minds uh, coding program. Uh, that was supposed to teach uh, Appalachian uh, community members uh, how to code, computer code, and uh, it's been a big fiasco. And and in part, the the people that promoted the program uh, said that it's because of the attitudes of Appalachian people, and they pointed to J.D. Vance as a kind of example of or sort of meta, you know, meta uh, meta explanation for all of this. So what we tried very hard to do in our book um, was to not do that and to and to stress the multiplicity of the Appalachian experience and voices of people from um, various ages, various genders, various sexual identities, uh, 
uh, urban rural, um, speaking to their own experiences and to show the range and the, the diversity of the place. And I think Appalachia often gets framed in very narrow, uh, stereotypical ways. Um, and it's not that some of those stereotypes aren't completely, or some of them do have some reality and truth, but there's much more diversity uh, by race, by class, by gender than is often uh, acknowledged. So that was one of the real emphasis of our book. If I can, I was just thinking about one poem um, that's in the book by Linda Parsons called Tonglin for My Mother. And this is a poem where Parsons is reckoning with her own troubled relationship with her mother. And when she has talked um, at readings about this poem, I think it, it gets at your question, Michael, both in the ways that are that the Appalachian experience discovered in this book is similar to J.D. Vance's and also differs from it. So she's writing about this, um, you know, her own relationship with her mother who suffers from addiction and mental illness, and that she, like Vance, escaped um, to her grandparents in a very similar way. So she's drawing these clear connections, but in the the a bit that she has written that is published along with the poem, she says that um, her writing has inched, she says, my writing has inched me toward understanding peace and forgiveness. And I think this is a real point of um, of difference between Vance's remembrance of his upbringing and what Linda Parsons is doing in that particular poem that's in Appalachian Reckoning, that she has moved to a place of peace and can appreciate what she gained from uh, the people who helped raise her. And she at least is seeing Vance's remembering of his, um, of his upbringing without the same sort of gratitude and perspective. So that's maybe, you know, two pages that are actually looking um, at the similarities and the differences between their experiences and J.D. Vance's. And an interesting piece to this is the way that uh, the rich history of Appalachia and how eclectic it is based on the stories told throughout this uh, edited piece. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how uh, how the rich history of Appalachian states has contributed to the uh, contributed to the wide uh, perspectives that could come from people reflecting on, uh, as they were throughout the different stories here, the uh, the experience they have had in Appalachia alongside the history and current, uh, current experience of Appalachia? Uh, well, I would say that, uh, you know, oftentimes Appalachia gets, again, narrow, narrow casted as simply a place of coal and coal miners. And that's been a huge part of the Appalachian story, but it's uh, far, far less so today. And um, so I think uh, we do have contributors who have family who have been coal miners and um, who live around coal mines. And the uh, consequence of that, Ivy Brashear has a, a wonderful narrative about her mother basically, uh, you know, taking out a gun and, and trying to prevent the coal trucks from coming by her house at least one day because of all the dust and the soot and everything. Um, so, I mean, I think coal is always part or is a, is a central part of central Appalachia, but 
our contributors extend from, um, at least in terms of uh, where they are now, from the northeast all the way down to the southeast, the entire range of the Appalachian region. And, um, and therefore, they have a much broader range of experiences as well. And a number of them are academics. And so they have the experience of, of, of going away to college or going away to school or, or even being in school in the region. Um, and the ways that that, you know, as anyone who's at a university, in some ways, you're somewhat removed from the broader community and then somewhat attached to it as well. Uh, so I think the diversity of the Appalachian history, and of course, coal mining also, one important point to point out is coal mining also uh, helped create much of the diversity of Appalachia because it brought in miners from all over the country, African-Americans, Eastern Europeans, and that diversity, I think, is often uh, erased in the conceptions of the region as, as basically all coal miners and all working class white, and usually all men, uh, with few exceptions of thinking about women and their central role in the, in the culture as well. Yeah, and I think just too often when people outside of the region think about Appalachia, they picture, I don't know, probably, I don't know where they're picturing, but probably like a central Appalachian coal mining town that had boomed in the um, the middle of the previous century and then has, has since busted. And I think that part of what is, is just the, an important truth about Appalachia is, as Tony was saying, the diversity in terms of geography, landscape, um, in addition to the people who are in the region. So it's a 13 state region that spans, you know, all along the Eastern um, seaboard almost. And so it looks very different in Western North Carolina where I grew up than it does in uh, Pennsylvania or West Virginia or, um, you know, the parts of Georgia that, that are Appalachian. And so the experiences are not only driven by whether you grew up in a city or a rural place, but there are also just all of these different subcultures within Appalachia. And part of that, I think, is, is important to capture in an authentic way by allowing people to kind of tell their own stories or through their own scholarship to explode this monolithic perspective that sometimes not only exists about Appalachia, but works really actively against Appalachia to simplify um, to simplify what it means to be Appalachian, and and it, that has that's just worked in really powerful ways against Appalachia itself. This this simplistic perspective. And it's almost uh, uh, call it uh, a dual identity that is viewed a. Uh, uh, in, in two different ways. There's stigma that is associated with being Appalachian or backcountry, whatever you want to, uh, whatever stereotype we want to associate with it. But then there's also pride, right? There's pride associated with being Appalachian. And I think that stands out in, uh, in, your, in, your, in your work here. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think there is great pride and great uh, sense of, I think one of the things that is not completely unique to Appalachia, but I think definitely shapes it, is a sense of, of 
relationship to place and to people, and that that is very strongly held, and people know very well uh, their ancestor stories and when they came to the region and and how long they've been there, and they know very well the um, the topography of the place in a way that I think a lot of people don't, um, you know, know where the where the hollers are and where the river split and where, you know, this mountain was and hopefully is, but in some cases was because of mountaintop removal. Um, and so I think that does, that does tie to a sense of pride of, of, of place that is, uh, that is not as strongly held or not as widely shared, I think, uh, outside the region, or at least in uh, particularly in urban or uh, suburban settings. Yeah. When you said the word duality, it made me think about the duality that I see um, has to do with perspectives of Appalachia. I think that Appalachia has been both romanticized as a place that is, sort of, you know, of another time and has also been demonized or the people of Appalachia have been kind of demonized as somehow, you know, not modern enough. And when that gets played out sometimes in representations, it's, you know, Appalachian people can serve as the scapegoats, um, you know, that they're somehow backward and, um, you know, that they're that they are not progressive in really important ways or they're not a part of mainstream culture. So that duality, I think, is really important. But I think that the resistance to um, to these outside perspectives, also to outside companies who have come in uh, with extractive industries for the throughout the history of, you know, recent history of Appalachia, this resistance is part of what leads to a pride in Appalachia. I don't see a lot of, um, I think that there is an acknowledgement that in certain places where there's poverty and then the, the, the effects of poverty, um, you know, leading to addiction and the opioid crisis that we see in Appalachia, as well as other impoverished places across the country. I think that there is a, a recognition that there is a difficulty in this moment, but I don't necessarily see it as, you know, like a dual feelings about being in Appalachia. I primarily see incredible pride in being Appalachian. Um, yes, that connection to land and knowledge of land and a closeness to a community, especially if you've been in the area for a long time. But I also have been thinking recently about how there's, there's something that kind of, um, creates a sense of pride because of this resistance that has called people to um, to fight back and to claim their own voices um, around around the ways that Appalachia has been depicted. Yes, and some of the primary places I think you uh, brought out, Meredith, in this book about uh, ways in which you learned about uh, Appalachia. Uh, well, you were from there, uh, but uh, then you're talking about an early movie that you had watched and uh, then the next experience being in college and uh, this book, uh, being in college or in the workforce, I, yeah, but anyway, then this book being a reminder of that experience you had with uh, with film. 
Yeah, I mean the the story I tell in um, in the piece that's in Appalachian Reckoning has to do with I you know I grew up in the region. I definitely thought of myself as as mountain. And when I went to college, I kind of understood what it meant to be Appalachian. And when I left home and went to Boston, was when I really recognized that people had perspective had a perception of me based on. I mean, the thing that people always um, referenced was the movie Deliverance. And it was shocking to me that someone, you know, would have seen that movie and then, which is a horror film and think like, oh, that must be what it's like to be from Appalachia. But, and even though it's, it was, you know, sort of framed as a joke, I realized that there really was a deep misunderstanding of the region that I knew to be really complex and beautiful and, um, yeah, that was it was a really powerful myth of place. And there are no movies short of just that one. There are several television shows that give a misrepresentation. I think of Moonshiners and things like that, but those are misrepresentations of the full picture, which I think is the beauty of this work piece of work, is that uh, it shows the different perspectives that people might not see uh, in these different television series or movies. They, they they would have a uh, perverted view of of Appalachia. Absolutely, and and of course that's nothing new. That's that's been going on for two hundred years, and uh, uh, certainly since the middle of the nineteenth century. The as Meredith says, the the mix of romanticization and demonization um, is always been there in representations of Appalachia and the Appalachian people, usually framed as are often framed as hillbillies. And um, and there's also a sort of perpetual fascination with it too, which has been kind of astounding to me. I I, I really did think that it was going to sort of fade out as all these other negative ethnic and racial stereotypes have, at least to the extent that they're no longer acceptable. They're still used, but uh, but hillbilly has uh, the idea of the hillbilly has uh, just incredible legs and. Um, it has a very mixed meaning, and of course, it matters if uh, you're talking who's saying it and who's it being said to. Um, but uh, but those representations in film, in television, in advertising, in music, in um, in all manner of popular culture have been there for for a very long time. And I do think Meredith's right that that is part of what creates this sense of pride or this sense of of uh, resistance. Um, and it's not just you know, and it has it has longer um, extension than just Appalachia because uh, certainly it associates itself with all of Kentucky. Um, anytime, <laughs> all my students are constantly saying that you know, uh, I say, what are these stereotypes about Kentucky? And and so many of them, I've been struck by. Um, persist long after the representations in popular culture are kind of gone. Like the idea that they nobody has any teeth and nobody has shoes. Um, those were very standard representations in the 30s and 40s. And, but they've really faded in popular culture, but that's still what people hold in their minds. So the, the power of those images um, are, are, are really strong. And, and I think one of my one of my first concerns with the J.D. Vance book was the cover because it represents a kind of dead and dying place uh, without any people, without any life. 
and and uh, and those things I think still persist as well. Yeah, and I think that those those images, like Tony's talking about, of a dead and dying place or of a really backwards place, are they're used to justify the erasure of people, the erasure of places. So it's not just a meaningless, harmless uh, stereotype. They probably never are meaningless, harmless stereotypes, but but certainly to to portray a complex group of people from this enormous region in one really simplistic way is is a way that that companies can justify um, you know ex- extracting resources from places and destroying those places in various ways. Right, and also I think the ways that media doesn't see it as a problem doesn't see it as problematic, mm-hmm. um, and pays less attention to it except in times of except when it has political ramifications which is another reason i think that jd vance's book became such a phenomenon of course was the trump presidency trump election and then presidency and how it often gets framed as uh partially to blame anyway or maybe even largely to blame is appalachian and appalachian voters who are voting against their own uh, best interest is how the argument goes. Um, and again, hiding the or erasing the uh, potential anyway for political diversity in the region and also the the ways that so many people in the region simply didn't participate. Uh, it wasn't necessarily they were pro-Trump, but they just saw the entire the, the entire political processes in some ways. Um, broken and and therefore you know not not worthy of participating in which is true of much of the country and not just uh, Appalachian so when you went out to discover the uh, different uh, writings and when you cast out uh, an invitation for these uh, for these uh, whether it be article or or poem how did you go about identifying which content to use for this book? I think one of the things that I want to make sure that people um, understand, if, especially if they're kind of new to Appalachia or thinking about Appalachia, which, you know, I hope some of our readers are, um, you know, coming to Appalachia for the first time and this is their introduction. But I think it's really important to recognize that what we're doing in some ways, I imagine it as a snapshot of a moment. We, we didn't have to, to, you know, dig deep, um, to, to find the contributors here. These writers have been doing this, this writing for a long time. These scholars have been doing this scholarship for a long time. There has been a rich history of both Appalachian, uh, fiction and poetry, Appalachian photography, and also scholarship around Appalachian studies for, for many years. So I just think that that's one important thing is to, um, <laughs> to not cast us as um, heroes that went out and found all of these writers who were, you know, in, in their hollers somewhere, because these are all people who are part of a community of, of writers and, and thinkers and activists. Um, and, and that is nothing new. What we were able to do, I think, is to look out and connect with people, some of whom we knew, um, a lot of the writers in the book um, 
were people that I had worked with in the past or that I had admired, people like Robert Geip, who is a a novelist who I think is just, he's one of my favorite novelists out there. And so I wrote to him and just said, you know, it'd be a real honor to have your voice here. And poets like Jesse Graves, um, someone that whose work I've read for years that I just thought it would be amazing to have Jesse Graves and Robert Morgan to have their voices here. There's also a group of uh, poets called the Afrolachian Poets, and this is a group that I've been following for about 15 years now, and it was um, kind of a no-brainer for me to reach out to, to some of those poets and ask them for contributions. So for me, it was, you know, the, the first round was really reaching out to people who have been doing this important work for a long time, who I've admired for a long time. And then we put out a call for papers, um, just asking, because we wanted to make sure that it was open to other people that we had not yet connected with. And we got, you know, tons of of great writers sharing their experiences, um, uh, you know, telling their personal narratives and and some, uh, some poetry as well. And then I think that this, Tony had a similar process with the following up on the Appalachian Studies Association panel. Is that right, Tony? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm so glad you said all that because that's exactly right, that um, that uh, in many ways the question was sort of who not to include as much as who to, who to desperately try to find to include. Uh, but the panel was the impetus for the first part of the book, uh, which is more scholarly, um, or at least more based on scholarship. Um, and, um, but, um, but the panel is also just, uh, you know, put together, uh, by just sort of looking who had been writing about hillbilly elegy and in different ways. And many, some of those people I knew well and others I didn't know at all. And, um, some weren't from the region, uh, Lisa Pruitt, who's a law professor at, uh, UC Davis. I uh, was from Arkansas, but um, had very ex- similar kinds of experiences and a similar kind of sp- a space that she she occupied socially. And so her writings on the relationship between race and class and the image of the hillbilly was a perfect fit. Um, and then we also wanted to, at least that part about the part that directly responds to hillbilly elegy, we wanted to be sure that... Um, that all voices were heard, and uh, I wanted to get some voices of people who wanted to see some some strengths in hillbilly elegy, although maybe also recognizing its limitations. Um, and so that that took a little digging, but um, and we didn't want everybody to be from academia. Uh, and I think we've done a, a really strong job on that. We have uh, social activists. We have uh, um, community leaders, we have certainly some a number of academics, but we have a number of different voices there as well. Um, and the uh, the final part was the was the photography, uh, adding photography to the to the project. And I think that's been a really enriching piece of it um, because some of those voices, you know, some of those are ways to challenge some of the single story aspects of JD Vance in a very visceral way to just simply show the variety of people and their experiences in the region. 
So I think bringing all of these together was was uh, is part of what makes the the sum greater than its parts. To to as another example of the way that this really was such a collaborative process, we had um, some poetry and photographs that were kind of curated, if you will, by Teresa Burris. And so her input was really important in helping broaden our perspective on the collection. And then we knew that we wanted, as Tony said, we wanted to have even more photographs. And for me, the photographs were, it was a little daunting to think about what images we should include because images can be so powerful and have been used in such a uh, forceful way to misrepresent the region or to simplify the representation of the region. And luckily, we knew about Roger May, who's a photographer from the area who has a project called Looking at Appalachia, which is a collection of kind of a crowdsourced photography project. It's a a website, lookingatappalachia.com. And we worked with Roger and um, really just were able to select some of the images that we found to be really powerful or beautiful um, that would be important to include in Appalachian Reckoning. So I feel really indebted to the input of both Teresa early on and then Roger um, toward the end of, of making sure that we had the, the right kinds of images and voices included in the book. Excellent. Uh, when uh, approaching this and as you uh, started to process, started to develop and started to uh, edit this anthology, did you learn anything new about Appalachia that you had not known before? Well, for me, it wasn't so much new as, as confirmation, um, but reaffirmation, I guess, maybe of the, uh, of the just in- incredible power of the voices of the region. Um, the, you know, the depth and the, uh, and the uh, thoughtfulness of the scholarship and the, the beauty and power of the poetry and the narratives, it just, uh, you know, reconfirmed to me the, uh, the incredible richness of the of the cultural space, and um, and how so much of that gets erased in these very uh, limited ways of thinking about it. Yeah, I I think I'm always learning something new about Appalachia. I mean, I would agree that it confirmed a lot of the things that that Tony just said, but um. I feel like I'm always learning something new about Appalachia because Appalachia continues to evolve and change in really important ways. So I, I think that one of the things that I, that was, I guess, confirmed for me, but, but kind of ex- exploded too in, in exciting ways was just how supportive this community of activists is and this community of scholars and writers. Um, I've lived several different places and I've worked in, you know, a couple of different fields and different uh, colleges and universities. And it's striking to me how collaborative and supportive and connected um, this community of, 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 of people is this community. And what I mean specifically here is not just that all of Appalachia is supportive, but the people who are really the advocates for Appalachia, who are sometimes farmers 
and sometimes um, are working on prison reform and sometimes are in classes teaching, you know, K through 12 and sometimes are at universities doing research on history, all of these different entry points into Appalachia. What has really been exciting to me about about the way that the collection came together was that I was able to just see a little bit deeper in each of these different areas to to get to understand the complexity of some of the um, some of just these different areas the the scholarship the the work that goes into the fiction and the poetry the community of photographers and the ways that they're connected and then all of these activists who are working in different areas of interest or you know different entry points but are all kind of working to protect a really complex place and don't need for that place to to be any one thing, the, the ways that people are able to protect and preserve the complexity um, of Appalachia has been, I guess, a little bit surprising to me, just the depths of that and the complexity of that work. Yeah, I would, I would add um, one final thing is just the, uh, the Appalachian diaspora and uh, how, how many of these pieces spoke about, um, you know, thinking about one's identity outside of place or how one's sense of identity was created by the, by the opposite, you know, by the difference of being somewhere else. Um, and, uh, so much of the Appalachian experience has been, uh, one of, of having to migrate for, for work, but continually coming back for, for community and, 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 space and I think those 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 uh, com- competing sort of ideas of being with Appalachian and then being how are you an Appalachian in the region and how are you one outside and where is your identity lie uh, has been one that comes up repeatedly in the in the book and I think that's another uh, aspect of the Appalachian story that that was you know re-enhanced for me in in reading these pieces. One of the things that I thought of is W.B. Du Bois's double consciousness being both Appalachian, but also uh, trying to be a scholar or whatever it might be and, and having both, uh, both pull at each other, uh, being in opposition to each other, not being quite enough of either. I think, I think that's a good, I think that's a good, uh, good analogy, a good connection. Um, and, uh, you know, it's also the idea that Appalachia for its history has often been thought of as kind of both in and not in America, that it's both kind of part of national trends and national experiences, but then it's also unique. And sometimes that uniqueness is framed as, uh, positive as sort of maintaining a folk tradition and folk culture and, uh, and unique places in a, in a, in a country which is increasingly, uh, becoming monotone and homogenous, but then other times it's seen as natively unique, you know, that it, that it holds on to anti-progressive, uh, sentiments and, and attitudes. Um, and, and, um, 
don't know where I'm going with this. I, I think that that, that uh, mix of being both in and of a place and, and you know, seen as both positives and negatives, I think that also is part of the Appalachian experience that the book, that the contributors in the book um, wrestle with and, and, and try to articulate. And I, I like, I like using that idea of double consciousness because part of what Du Bois is talking about is the way that one feels and the way that one is perceived and, and recognizing that you are always being seen as something. And I think that that is, that definitely shows up throughout the book, this, um, this realization that, you know, like to use my example, that I understood what it meant to be Appalachian. And then at a certain point, I understood what it meant to be seen as Appalachian. So where the power lies, whether it's in my own claiming of Appalachian identity, or does it lie in the, you know, does the power lie with the person who's seeing me and making assumptions about me? A lot of the, the um, pieces in the book are really, uh, wrestling with that idea of how do you how do you claim how do you uh bring that together to to uh um to have a full understanding of what it means to be Appalachian and also be seen as Appalachian that to me has been one of the um affirming things both to to read those other stories in the collection but also those are the conversations I tend to have at readings that we've done people coming up from the audience to talk about their own, you know, I have now, I think at every reading had someone who's maybe in their uh, late 60s or 70s tell me about the ways that they were taught that they had to lose their accent and that they never regained it. They never, um, you know, they never were able to make peace with with what it meant to be Appalachian or to speak in an Appalachian accent. Um, but that that duality that you're talking about, that double consciousness, I think definitely shows up as people are trying to understand the the ways that you can be Appalachian and uh, and also acknowledge the way like what that means to other people. So you've written several books on Appalachia and uh, hillbilly culture. Have you continued on with your exploration of this topic or where are you at now, Meredith and Tony, in terms of your, your current research? Um, well, I am, I'm not, I'm not totally sure what my next step will be. I, I still feel like we're, we're kind of in the middle of this and seeing how this plays out. I have been writing um, one thing that this book, kind of encouraged in me is leaning into the the power of personal narrative. So I am working through um, an extended personal narrative that has to do with place and family. I am also um, potentially kind of returning to a project that had started years earlier on representations of Appalachian women in fiction. Um, and trying to think about ways to collectively think about this is this is just sort of a new idea, but thinking about ways to uh, to collectively understand the power of the power of telling one's own story 
And how does that how does that work in you know, I, I teach writing classes and so uh, thinking about the power of telling one's own story in a in a college writing class and recognizing the different things that influence the stories that you can tell and the ways that your stories really are unique. Um, those are some of the, the things that I'm kind of wrestling with currently. Yeah, I, I agree with Meredith's earlier point, which is that uh, we're we're uh, still kind of working through the process of this book um, and the the reactions to it and the broader public. Um, and we've been very excited by how much um, uh, how much attention it's getting and how much interest there is in it. Um, and um, I've written other works in the past on I, I am to be to be clear, I am not Appalachian. Um, I've always looked at it as a as a from an outsider's perspective, um, from the idea of how is it perceived and how is it conceptualized on the national stage, and really even on the global stage. And um, so I'm not I'm not sure what's next. I the thing that I'm really interested in doing now is working on. Uh, Bring raising consciousness about uh, the, the climate crisis, and it seems to me Appalachia is uniquely positioned in that conversation because there's been uh, activism, environmental activism in Appalachia from for a very long time. It's very well it's very well conceived, and I think there's ways in which it can have lessons about how to change consciousness about environmental practices and move towards move towards a more sustainability-based uh, mindset. And I think that's what uh, we desperately need in this country and world. And so one thing I've thought about is, is looking at that history and trying to see there and other places where we can find examples of how to, how to do this, how to change people's mindsets and, and move from things which at one time seem completely unimaginable in terms of changing life because why would you ever do that and that's not what we're all about and whatever but then but then at points in history that that does change and people say this is no longer acceptable you know we shouldn't have rivers catching on fire and you know we can do things about these things and so uh that's the thing that i i guess i'm starting to think about now in terms of my next project there's plenty of work to be done, and uh, yeah. <laughs> one publication at a time. Yeah, exactly. Well, this has come to uh, the end of our time together. I'm going to take a different approach since I've already asked the question of what are you working on now. Instead, uh, tonight, today, I would like to um, maybe discuss what how you would advise uh, a listener to approach this book, what you hope that they are to get out of this book when reading it? Well, one of the things that we say in the introduction is that we, we want readers to understand that no one book can speak for Appalachia and that our book is, is no different, that, that no book can be the authoritative text on what it means to, to be Appalachian. Um, so I would say... Certainly, we hope that people would would take a look at the book and um, make your way through it with an open mind and uh, prepare to have 
some ideas challenged and prepare to hear a lot of different perspectives that don't always even agree with one another. But then I would hope too that this would just be um, kind of an entry point to to doing deeper reading um, about the region because there are so many important, fantastic writers who are digging in in so many different ways to to really complicate and advocate for Appalachia today. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I would, I, I loved what Meredith said earlier about how, you know, we're hoping to get readers who really have not been, really know much at all about Appalachia. And so I, I hope one thing the book will do is promote further you know, further interest in and further reading about the region. There's a very rich uh, literature about its history and about its culture. Um, and then I think the other thing is to think about the, to sort of recognize the benefits of such a wide approach to, to a topic or to an area. I, I think one of the great strengths of this book is its multiple not just perspectives, but also uh, forms that we have poetry, that we have narrative, that we have scholarship, that we have photography, that we have humor and we have uh, anger. And, um, and all of that range, I think, gives, gives for any place, not just Appalachia, but for any place, gives a more complete sort of notion of, of, of what a place is. And to maybe, uh, therefore, not look at a book like Hillbilly Elegy and think it's kind of the the definitive answer or the one the one only read that you need to do and then you understand all about a region or 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 a people, um, but to understand that it comes only through you know exposing yourself to a range of voices, um, and and to to recognize that uh, that a range of people have you know very competing opinions. Um, there's great beauty in our book, I think, and there's and there's a lot of uh, pain as well. And that that mix of experiences is, you know, it's not just the Appalachian story, but it's really the human story. And so to think about it as a as a as a small part of a much larger project of understanding, uh, or at least getting a little better sense of of the of the human experience, I think is, you know, maybe a little too, <laughs> maybe a little too. Uh, uh, dramatic at close, but but I do think that our, our book can be part of that kind of exercise. All right. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Tony, for uh, again, for joining me today. This is uh, New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network, and uh, we look forward to having you on the show again with your next publication. Thanks so much for having Thank us. Thank you.